If you um, have your Bibles, take them out. Turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. No, Mark. Why do I do that? Good grief. There's a lot going on in this head. We are in Mark. So whatever I say each week, just we're going to be in Mark for the remainder of probably 2024 or 2022, whatever year it is. All right. If you don't have a, a Bible, you can use one of those black chair Bibles. It's page 837. We are finishing up the end of um, chapter 1 today. Starting in verse 35. And rising very early in the morning. While it was still dark. He, and that he's Jesus. Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all, of, all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone but go, show yourself to the priest and, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. And he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. You could be seated and let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you in the strong and in the mighty name of your son, Jesus. And Lord, what I ask is that you would help us to see Jesus in and through this text. Like we have a text of scripture describing him and telling us what he was like, but help us with spiritual eyes under the power of the spirit to see him. And in seeing him, may we savor him and we draw near to him. May we have a desire to, to follow after him. And so enable us, enable me, help me, Lord, this morning to, to preach and to proclaim your word with passion and with precision for your glory. And help us as we gather to, to hear, to listen, to be present, to press in. In your name we pray, amen. Um, the theme of the gospel of Mark. I, I, I kind of been circling it, but I've been, I, I, I just wanted to kind of give it to you. And so I don't know that I'll say it every week, but um, it's, it's in the graphic, but here's, here's kind of the theme, or, um, if you will, is the theme of the gospel of Mark is this, is Jesus, the servant king, he's come to establish, to inaugurate the, the kingdom of God. 
And so that's, that, that's, that's kind of what we've been talking about um, for the last, I don't know, already, I think five weeks that we're into this series. And so what Mark is doing in the beginning of the gospel is he's, un, he's unfolding aspects of the kingdom of God. Like, what is the kingdom of God like? And so we've talked a little bit about that, the anticipation and the proclamation and all of those kinds of things about the kingdom of God. It really, like, the, 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 it begs the question like there's a, there's a question being asked of us, of us um, each week as we take a little section of that. And the question is the, the question of the command Jesus gave to, to Simon and Andrew, James and John of, of come and follow me. Like the question that's being asked um, each week is will you follow this servant king? Will you follow after him? In fact, um, we, we use like a, a graphic to, to talk about our sermon series and Pastor Bo drew up this graphic that we've been using and even in the graphic, like we wanna sew the image in there. Like it's not just an image because it's a cool image or it looks good, but even the image, we want the image itself to teach. And so we chose this, it very much looks like a hillside in Israel and you'll see like there's a, there's a path being beaten down. And so it's, it's, it's kind of that same idea here is will you follow this path Will you come with Jesus to this path? But maybe what you really wanna ask is, okay, will I follow Jesus? Where is Jesus going? Like, like before I know, like, like, will I follow him? Where is he going? And so in the graphic, we put a cross in the path. Like you'll notice the path is kind of winding its way and, and there um, in the horizon is a cross because where is Jesus going? That's where Mark is taking us as he's taking us to, to the cross but Jesus is a servant king and he will serve us by going to the cross. Jesus is a suffering servant king even as he goes to the cross to suffer. And so, you know, in each section, we're looking at aspects of this kingdom. And in each section, we're asking ourselves the question, will we follow Jesus and join him in his kingdom that he is proclaiming here? And what we see today in the aspect of the kingdom of God is we see the advancement of the kingdom how does the king, how does this king, King Jesus, the servant suffering king, how does he advance his kingdom? Well, not the way the disciples thought he might advance his kingdom. He's not advancing his kingdom as others would have advanced the kingdom because how do most people advance a kingdom? They advance it through, through force, through a sword, through, a, through weapons. But this isn't how Jesus is advancing his kingdom. It's not gonna come through a sword. In fact, Simon Peter will get in trouble for that at the end of Jesus's life. They'll come to arrest Jesus to take him to the cross and Peter will stand up and pull out a little sword and cut off uh, one of the servants of the high priest, one of the guards of the high priest's ear, a man by the name of Malchus, and then Jesus will heal it. I mean, that's miraculous right there. But even in that, Simon will get in trouble to say that my kingdom doesn't advance by force, by power, by sword. It, wait, hold on. It's advancing by force and it is advancing by power, but not what appears to be powerful. Like we would understand weaponry, advancement, right? That's power. But Jesus is pointing to a new power, a new authority. And so what is it? Well, here it is in this text. The kingdom of God, it's advancing through three ways we see in this text. Number one, through prayer. That doesn't look very powerful, but it's very, very powerful. More powerful than a sword. More powerful than a howitzer is prayer. It's advancing through prayer it's advancing through preaching and it's advancing through renewal. And we'll walk through the text as we see this. The first one is prayer. 
in the first part of this text, we see the, the importance of prayer in the life and in the ministry of Jesus. That Jesus' God-glorifying activity, we talked about that last week, is God-glorifying activity, it is sustained and it is empowered by prayer. Last week what we saw was, um, we saw Jesus who was preaching and teaching in Capernaum. He'd gone into a synagogue there, he had taught his teaching was with authority. An unclean spirit shows up. Jesus exercises that spirit. We see Jesus has authority and he has power over that. And then what we see happening is after that, Jesus leaves and he goes next door to Simon and Andrew's home. And there is uh, Simon's mother-in-law is ill and Jesus heals her from the fever. And what's happening is, is the word about Jesus is spreading all throughout Capernaum. And what happens at the end of the text, we see is Jesus has become very popular. He's, Jesus is more popular in the, in the town of Capernaum than Taylor Swift will be popular at the Super Bowl tonight. Like that's how popular that, that Jesus has become in Capernaum. In fact, Mark records it like this at the end of last week's text. He says, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed or oppressed by demons. And the whole city, I mean, again, Capernaum's a larger city, maybe as many as 1,500, 2,000 people are living there. And Mark says it was like the whole city was gathered at the doorway. They're all gathered at the door. And Jesus, he healed many who were sick with various diseases. He cast out many demons and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And now we have now the next day. So after a busy Sabbath day, what does Jesus do on the next day? Well, here, Mark picks up, uh, it, you know, kind of in chronological order, and he picks up, how does Jesus begin the day? We'll look at verse number 35. And rising very early in the morning. Where's my early risers? Rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus, he departed, he says. He departed, and he went to a desolate place, and there he prayed. How does Jesus respond to a busy day? He prayed. That's how he responded to a busy day. And it goes without saying that if this is true of Jesus as the son of God, how much more true should it be of us? That you and I, we, we are turning out all day, every day into God glorifying activity, or at least that's the goal of life. The goal of life isn't just to enjoy life. It isn't just to entertain ourselves in life. But the, joy, the, 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 the purpose of life is to turn out in God-glorifying activity with our lives. Every day, you and I, we are turning out in God-glorifying activity. Now, we're not turning out in, in, in casting out demons or in healing the sick or in saying things such as that. But you and I, we are, we're still turning out in the power of the Spirit with the fruit of the Spirit coming into play to do things that glorify God. There's a demand even there. Like again, that we're not just turning out doing things, but we're turning out doing things in such a way that, that God gets the glory in those things. And there's a demand placed on us in those things. Like how do we do that? That we're not just uh, mustering up personal courage we're not just uh, uh, pressing into our own personal fortitude as we do things. We're not just pretending to be extroverts, you know, when in reality we're really introverts. That's not what we're talking about. No, what we're talking about is in order to do God-glorifying things, we have to do things. The things that we do, we have to do them in the, in the power of the Spirit. And the question becomes, how do you tap into the power of the Spirit? How do you do things that, that bear the fruit of the Spirit with our lives 
Well, here is the, the answer is you do them through, through prayer. That is how you do it. There's a demand for spirit empowerment in life. In your marriage, to have a thriving marriage that glorifies God, it will take the power of the spirit. Like, yeah, you can just survive in marriage and make a good and have a decent marriage. But if you want a marriage that glorifies God, it will take spirit empowerment in order to do that. If you want a life that glorifies God, it will take spirit empowerment in order to do that. In order to raise up children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, it will take spirit empowerment to do that. In order for you to engage in your work and your places of vocation in a way that honors and glorifies God, it will take spirit empowerment in order to do that. Even yesterday, I was uh, at, a, at the school, at a school here in town with my my youngest daughter, Safira, and I was like looking at, at all these doors that were decorated by these teachers. And, I, and we came across, actually, uh, Miss Craycraft. We were down at 2nd Street. We came across Miss Craycraft's door. And I looked in there, and I was just thinking about her job and what she does and the, the demand for spirit empowerment in that. Like, I can't imagine having a bunch of kids in a room and not taking out a child or two. But even more importantly than not just murdering other people's children, but loving children and engaging in them and shaping them and being a model before them and being love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. And I know every one of you as teachers in here, like that's who you want to be. I would say every one of you, hopefully within your vocation, within your job, that is who you want to be in front of everyone. Like how can I be a worker that produces love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control to all of my coworkers? How can I let my light shine? Well, listen to me, it takes spirit empowerment to do that. Needless to say, anybody can go be a grumpy bear at work, right? Anybody can go there and, and, and anybody can even go there and just try to mind their own business and do their work. But if you really want to do work that, that shines for Jesus, that gives him glory, that's, that's, that's light shining in the darkness, then it takes spirit empowerment to do that. When we think about our lives and all the avenues and the different aspects of our lives, it takes the spirit in order to do that. And that is what Jesus is modeling for those people. He's modeling for us. He's modeling for his disciples. How do you live a life like that? Well, look at Jesus who never was divorced from the spirit and yet look at what he does. He goes off and he prays. I love this text because it teaches us two things about prayer. It teaches us about the necessity of prayer, right? We just saw that. Like if it's necessary for Jesus, the son of God to pray, how much more is it necessary for you and I to pray? And yet it also models for us the, the simplicity of prayer both the necessity and the simplicity of prayer. Look at how Mark describes Jesus' prayer life. Look at how Mark describes how Jesus prays in four verbs in verse number 35. How did Jesus maintain fellowship, communion with the Father? How did he, how did he experience spirit empowerment for his life and for ministry? Look at what verse 35 says. And rising, there's one verb. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed, second verb and went, that's third verb, out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. The simplicity of prayer. How do you pray? Like, I, people ask that. I think that's one of the great lies of the enemy is to making prayer more mysterious than it really is. How do you pray? Here's how you pray. You rise, you depart. That's moving away from distractions. You go, and you pray. 
You talk to God. You spend time with God. You tell God what's on your heart. You hear from God. Like that, that take your Bible, hear from God, read God's word while you're in prayer. Let it structure your prayers. That's how you pray. Jesus's life is marked by, by two rhythms. Like you'll, we'll see this as we go through Mark. Jesus's life is marked by two rhythms. Our lives should be marked by two rhythms. We're, we're turning out in God glorifying activity. And then we're, we're turning into God glorifying prayer. Our lives should be marked by a turning out in God glorifying activity as you rise up early in the morning and you put on your work pants and shoes and some of you may wear work boots. You put on your work boots and you go to work. You're turning out in God glorifying activity. So you spend time with your family. You're turning out in God glorifying activity wherever you go. Hopefully you're engaged in God glorifying activity. And how will you sustain it? Well, you've got to turn in from time to time. Pull back into God-glorifying prayer. Now notice where Jesus goes. Where does he go to pray? Well, Mark says this in the English. We have it, it's translated, he goes to a desolate place. In fact, I want you to notice here that, that two times in our text today, there's desolate place shows up. The first time is in Mark 35. In the first verse we looked at, rising very early, Jesus chooses to go out to a desolate place and it's there that he prays and spends time with the Father. But then also notice at the very end of our text, again, Jesus finds himself then in a desolate place. And the first time it's, it's by choice he goes there into this desolate place. But notice what happens at the end of the text. He's, he's kind of forced there. Circumstances are the ones that drive him into this um, desolate place. Now, this desolate place that Jesus is, a, is going to, it's not, it's, not a, 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 it's, it's not going for a hike in the woods. Like that, that's not what it is. He's not going out into nature and he's going into a hike. This desolate place is also could be translated a desert, a wild place. I like that. The wilderness. That the desolate places and words such as that, they're, they're used throughout the Bible to describe a place of pre preparation, a place of purification, oftentimes a place of testing and a place of temptation. Remember when Jesus is tempted after his baptism, the spirit drives him into the wilderness, into a desolate place, the same picture we have here, into a hard place. The prayer becomes a necessity when we find ourselves in hard places. And sometimes the Lord will ordain hard places for us and put us there. And oftentimes circumstances will drive us to hard places. But no matter which one you find yourself in, God has placed you in that hard place to, to teach you. What is he trying to teach you? I think he's trying to teach you, well, a ton of things, but he's teaching you how to pray. He's trying to teach you to depend upon him. And that's a good word for us, that hard places in life are, are where the Lord does his best work. Look at Jesus. He's choosing to go there. He's driven there. But what does he do when he's there? He, he's tapping into spiritual power from the Father there. That whenever we find ourselves in hard places, desolate places, we find ourselves in those, in those tough situations in life, that we need to pray, we need to press in. Use the hard places as times of fellowship and communion with God. So the kingdom of God is, it's advancing. It's advancing through prayer. It's advancing when you pray. 
That when you pray, hopefully you're not just praying for your needs. Hopefully you're not just asking God to bless the food, but you're, you're praying. And as we even saw last week, like preaching a spiritual warfare and praying a spiritual warfare and the kingdom of God is being advanced as we, as we pray, as we pray that, like we talked about at the end of the sermon last week, that, uh, that, that God would illuminate minds that they could see and, and understand the, the Bible even better. The kingdom of God, it advances through prayer and by prayer. Battles are fought and won in prayer and through prayer. Saints are grown and sanctified in prayer and by prayer. Ministers are upheld and carried by the prayers of others. So Jesus finds himself in this time of prayer, but then notice that his time of prayer gets cut short. It gets cut short by by, by a demand to turn out. It gets cut short by the demands of ministry. Jesus has gone missing, so Simon puts together a search party and they begin to look for Jesus. We pick that up in verse number 36. And Simon and those who were with him, they searched for him. And they found him and they said to him, look, everyone's looking for you. You're like, yay, Jesus, I don't know if you noticed or not, you've gotten really popular down there in Capernaum. Like they're looking for you. They're wondering where you went. They got some more um, healings for you to do. They got some more maybe demons for you to cast out. But look at what Jesus said to them. He says, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For this is why I came out. And he went throughout all of Galilee. So that's the region all throughout little villages, little towns. And what's he doing? He's preaching in their synagogues and he's casting out demons. The kingdom of God, it advances in prayer, but the kingdom of God also advances through preaching, through proclamation of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, it, 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 is, uh, it advances through evangelism, we could even say. Notice for Jesus, he doesn't go where he's wanted, but rather he goes where he's needed. Everyone, the people in Capernaum, that's the place where he worked the miracles and preached. He's demonstrated his power there. They want him to come back, but he doesn't go back there. He goes on to the next town where he hasn't been before. And notice what he says, this is why I've come out I've come here and I've come out. I began my public ministry. Why? So I can preach and proclaim the kingdom of God. That's why I've come out. So I can teach and preach and show the authority that I have by my preaching and teaching. In fact, we, we pick up in this text, we pick up, uh, and even last week's text as well, this, uh, this kind of silence. I mean, it's, it is a little baffling when you see like Jesus commanding silence. Remember to the demons, he says, cast them out and he commands them, don't say a word, I want you to come out and be silent. And they're not all that obedient. We even see it in the text that we'll get to in just a minute with the leper. And Jesus heals this leper and notice even what Luke says, he says to him sternly, that's, 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 he's using his big boy voice, sternly he says to the leper, hey, this is what I want, listen, see to it that you say nothing to anyone. So why, why, why is Jesus, um, why is Jesus, commanding silence. I mean, you would think the opposite. You would think Jesus would say, hey, go and tell everybody you see what has happened to you. Go to testify about me. I mean, in fact, we sometimes would say no publicity is bad publicity, but notice here to Jesus, he would disagree here. Why, didn't Je- why is Jesus commanding silence in the beginning of his ministry? Here's why. He doesn't want them to be confused with who he is and why he's come. He hasn't just come to be a miracle worker. He hasn't just come to heal the sick and to cast out demons and to do the miraculous among him, but ultimately he's come what, as the servant king. That he doesn't just come to take care of physical ailments. See, miracles draw a big crowd. 
right? But Jesus isn't just here to draw big crowds, but he's here to make disciples. And Jesus' teaching makes disciples. That's what he's saying. He doesn't want to confuse them here. Ultimately, what I'm here to do and what I'm here for is I'm here to die for sins. I'm the suffering servant king, not the miracle worker among you. I am going to go ultimately to a cross. And again, will you follow me there? Will you follow me beyond just getting your physical needs met? Will you follow me if it costs you something? If it, yay, if it costs you everything, will you follow me? In fact, Jesus will, we'll see in other gospel accounts, like with John, when Jesus will, will do a miracle and he'll feed them and they'll all show up and a bigger crowd will show up. And what are they showing up for there? Not to hear Jesus' teaching, but for free food, to see the show. And there Jesus will dismiss the crowd. And there'll be so few, will get back down to just, his, just a few of his disciples again. And then he'll say, are you gonna leave too? And then that's where, like in the song we just sang, where else are we gonna go? Where else are we gonna go? Because you hold the words of eternal life. They've been changed, not, by his, not just by his miracles, not just by his power, but by his word. Been changed by his word. Jesus doesn't want them to be confused. Don't confuse me for a miracle worker. I'm a preacher and ultimately I'm a, I'm a savior and I'm gonna go all the way to the cross. It really drives us into a, a couple of things for us here. Number one, let me say this. It, it drives us to personal discipleship. Jesus has come to, to preach and to teach. That's ultimately what he said here. That's why I've come out, to preach, to proclaim, to be a preacher and a teacher. And it drives us to ask ourselves the question, are we, are we learners? Are we learners? Are we learning from him? Are we spending time in personal discipleship with him? That's what he's come to do. In fact, he'll tell his disciples, again, I think it's in, in John, at the end of his ministry, you are my disciples. How do you know if you're my disciples? He said, if you abide in my words. That our following Jesus, what does that look like? Our following Jesus looks like us following closely to his word and learning from him and pressing into his word. That's what it looks like. First, it drives us, I think, into personal discipleship. Second, I think it, this text in this section, it drives us into personal evangelism. Jesus has been sent by the Father and I've, I've come in the, in the power of the Spirit to preach and to proclaim. And then Jesus will send the Spirit and what is the work of the Spirit? Well, the work of the Spirit is to send the church, to empower the church, to empower us. As Pastor Bo says every week, we've been empowered to go out on his mission. What is his mission? To make mature, right, and multiply disciples. In fact, in our banner over here as missionaries, that we have been sent by the Spirit. He is, the Spirit has empowered us to declare the gospel and to make disciples. It presses us into how is this kingdom of God being being advanced and being multiplied as we learn and then as we go, as we speak and as we tell. It drives us to prayer as well, in particular to, to pray for missionaries who are carrying Jesus' words to folks who have, yet, who have yet to hear it. In particular for us, it should, should drive us to, to pray for Justin and Ashley Ross, packed up from other comforts here and have gone to Thailand. Why did they go to Thailand? Because they knew there were sections and places in Thailand that have yet to hear the gospel. They go up into this little village up in the mountains, a little, you know, place where they're growing rice and all of this. I mean, not much there. And they begin to talk about Jesus. And when they first go into this little village, it's called a 
Doihoidia, I think is how you say it, Doihoidia. When they first go into this village, they didn't think there was a single person there who had ever heard about Jesus. Not a single person. They're going around and they're, they're beginning to, to tell and to talk and then they find one young girl who had lived in another village and heard about Jesus and responded in belief. And she's like, I've been praying I've been praying that God would send missionaries and that churches would come and that Christians would come. And this is what this little girl, she says, we gotta go for every village. I want you to go into every, every home and tell them about your God. Let's go tell them about your God. It drives us to pray and to pray in particular for Justin as he's trying to learn Thai. I can't imagine. I mean, I, I break up with English, something I've been familiar with my whole life. And this guy who's like, you know, I'm a little older than Justin. You know, they say you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And this guy's trying to learn Thai, a very complicated language. And every day, what is Justin doing right now? Every day, he's trying to learn the language. Why? So he can teach and preach and tell people about Jesus in their native language. It drives us to pray. To pray for Justin and Ashley and Pastor Ack and the work that is being done there. The kingdom of God, it advances it advances through prayer, it's sustained by prayer, it advances through preaching and the proclamation of the word and evangelism, but lastly, what we see in this text is it, it advances through renewal. Now, and I, I gotta be honest with you, like the, the, sometimes being a, sometimes language just wrecks me. Like I, I can spend up at two o'clock in the morning trying to think about what's the best word here to use, you know? Like you're trying to think about it. And this is what I landed on, I landed on renewal. I could have said change, I could have said conversion, I could have said cleansing, but I landed on um, renewal because that's really what we see is we see God doing his work of renewal, that Jesus is doing a renewal. He's, he's given us a sneak peek at to what heaven's gonna be like. Like again, the gospel, the kingdom of God, is, it's coming, it's being inaugurated, but it's, it's a glimpse, it's a foretaste for what we'll ultimately see in heaven. Jesus has just given us a preview of that. And that's what we see here. Ultimately in heaven, we'll see the consummation, the fullness of Jesus' work of renewal where all of, the, where all of the wrongs of this world will be righted. Everything that we wrecked in the fall will be finally righted. And that's why I say renewal. But notice here, we get renewal in this leper. Verse number 40. And a leper came to him, imploring him. And kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, you and I, we, probably, we don't think a lot about leprosy, except for when we're reading the Bible. Let's just be honest. Like, it, I think in 19, I studied some on leprosy this week. It's like, in 1982, they came out with some medicine that, that I, it didn't like totally cure leprosy, but it, it could stop the spread of it. And it, could, it, it, it couldn't do what Jesus did. That, I just want to be careful here. Like what Jesus does here in this text is like not, he, he heals the person, but there's not even a, a trace that he ever had it. And now the medicine will stop it. It'll clean, clear up the spots that came out um, in 82, but it can't like, it can't undo what leprosy has done. But nevertheless, you know, we just don't think a lot about it. But in biblical times, it was a dreaded disease, maybe the most dreaded disease. Like you and I, we think about dreaded diseases, like the C word, cancer. That's a dreaded disease. It's almost like leprosy of the insides. But what these people have is leprosy on kind of the outside, if you will, cancer on the, on the outside. 
Now, in biblical times, leprosy could refer to a, a broad variety of skin diseases, but then there was uh, the true leprosy disease. It's uh, called Hansen's disease now. It's very contagious, very painful disease of the skin. In fact, in Leviticus chapter 13 and 14, it two chapters that deal with skin diseases. And those chapters have... 59 verses. Now, I'm, I'm treading lightly here because last week I got in a little bit of trouble with Miss D because she's getting ready, as Bo has already said, Pastor Bo, he's getting ready to teach the ladies the book of Leviticus. And I spun it in a way that made it sound maybe unsavory or unhelpful. But I'm telling you, it's super helpful, super practical. And in all honesty, it is the word of God. And it helps us really to understand like who God is and what he's come to do. And we see that even here in this text. It declares, it's like chapter after chapter about things being unclean, 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 like what we have in this text, unclean, unclean, unclean. And then it's like, and where do we go to be cleansed? We go to God and he's the one who has cleansing power. It really is speaking about like what we've done in the fall, how we've wrecked everything and there's disease and all of this bad things and injustices is happening and God is coming in his kingdom to reestablish newness and health and renewal. It's the same message. It's the message of renewal. But in Leviticus, when you get there to chapter 13 and 14, it will talk about the work of the priests. And the priests, it's like, are they priests or are they dermatologists? Because in these 59 verses, what they're trying to do is determine, like, your skin disease, is it just another disease? Is, is it eczema or is it leprosy? Because if it's leprosy, we got to do something with you. If it's eczema, we can give you a shot, some potion, something. But if it's more than that, like, we've got to, 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 to thwart the spread of leprosy. So that's, that's what's happening there. In fact, what we see, here's how we are to deal with a leper, Leviticus 13. Verses 44 through 46, and all of God's word is inspired and is profitable unto man, including this verse. Look at what he says. If he is leprous man, then he is unclean. The priest must pronounce him unclean. His disease is on his head. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear, look at how they have to dress. They have to wear torn clothes. Let their, let their hair of their head hang loose. They have to cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean and he shall look, live alone. His dwelling shall be outside of the camp. I mean, as if the disease itself was a horrible, painful disease, as if it wasn't bad. Look at the, the isolation that has to go beside the disease. I mean, they're religiously cut off. They couldn't go to the temple. They couldn't go to the synagogue. They couldn't go home. They couldn't associate with their family. They couldn't touch anyone. They couldn't hug their children. They couldn't hold their wives' hands. They had to be isolated from all um, healthy people. The only people they could associate with would be the other miserable lepers. I mean, in India, these people were called the untouchables. They couldn't be touched because of their disease. So when Mark says that there was this leper, who came to Jesus, what's happening here is completely taboo. It's something that is not done, especially when you realize the popularity of Jesus and that he has a crowd around him. And yet this man is so desperate, this leper violates all necessary standards for health or all necessary standards of exclusion. And he comes to Jesus, he's imploring him, he's kneeling before him, and he asks Jesus this question, if you will, you can make me clean. 
And look, look, a question and a request. The question isn't, do you have power? He's already recognized Jesus has power. He's not asking him, Jesus, do you, do you have authority to do this? Jesus, do you have power to do this? Jesus, do you have sovereignty to do this? Rather, what he's asking is, Jesus, are you good? He's not asking him about his power. He's asking him about his heart and about his character. If you, you can make me clean. He's convinced of Jesus's ability, but he's not sure of Jesus's willingness. Jesus, I know you have power, but are you compassionate? And notice what it says in verse 41, moved with pity. Hmm, what a beautiful verse. Some of you may, may, may be convinced that there is a God, but you may still be questioning what this God is like. Jesus has come to be a revelation of who God is. And he is a God who is compassionate, a God who is moved by pity, a God who just doesn't go where he's, where he's wanted, but goes where he's needed. And that's what Jesus does here. He's moved with pity and he stretched out his hand and he touched him. He touched him and he said to him, I will be clean. Now there's a distinction made here that scripture only talks about healings from leprosy in this kind of language, the language of cleansing here. He's been cleansed. He's not just been healed. He healed him of the leprosy, but notice he also, he declared him to be clean. Now there's an important distinction that's being made here of Jesus's power, of Jesus's nature. See, normally unclean things make clean things unclean. Let me say that again so you think about that. Unclean things when they come into contact with clean things, they make those clean things unclean. One time when I was a kid, I went fishing with my dad. It was actually about this time of the year. It was in February. We went to the Ohio River. We were fishing. We were fishing for sauger. We hadn't caught a single fish. My dad had taken some other people fishing with them, and he had told them, hey, this is like an all-inclusive trip when you come fishing. Don't worry about packing anything. I've got poles. I've got bait. I'll bring food even, which when my dad said he was going to bring food, I was a little concerned, but nevertheless, my dad's not a cook. He kind of is now, but he wasn't then. And so my dad had also, because it's February, he brought this kerosene heater. And so it got about lunchtime. My dad was like, hey, you all hungry? We're like, yeah, we're hungry. My dad opens up this brown paper sack and he pulls out a little pan. He sets it up on top of the kerosene heater. He pulls out a, a can of Campbell's bean with bacon soup and a can opener. He opens it up and he dumps the soup into the pot. And then he takes the can and he reaches down into the Ohio River and he pours the Ohio River water into the pan and begins to stir it up. Now, immediately, we are all like that emoji of the guy with the green face, like immediately. Like you'd say, dad, what are you doing? And dad would say, hey, I'm making soup. We'd say, no, what you're doing is you're ruining soup is what you're doing. I mean, what had happened there was even though the bean with bacon was in a can and it was like clean, right, and pure, you just ruined it by adding Ohio River water. I mean, no amount of boiling are you gonna do to drink unfiltered river water, right? You're not going to do it. But look at what, look at what Jesus, like we understand that, that unclean things, right, make clean things unclean. But what Jesus does is the opposite here. That Jesus, when he, when he touches unclean things, he makes them clean. Because not only is Jesus clean in and of himself, like not only is Jesus righteous and pure, but Jesus is, here's the point, Jesus is the cleansing agent. 
See, unclean things make clean things, right? By and large, it makes them unclean unless it encounters a cleansing agent. Unless you take what's unclean and you, right, it encounters bleach or Lysol or some kind of acid, right? Does it become clean? And what Jesus is saying, not only is he by the son of God, as the son of God, not only is he morally pure in and of himself, not only is he completely righteous, but what Jesus has come to do is he's come to cleanse and declare things that are unclean to make them clean. And that's what he's doing in this text. I mean, notice even what it says in verse number 42, and immediately, we said that's Mark's favorite word. Immediately, 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 and this time he says, and immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. I mean, come on. What manner of man is this? That he cleanses lepers with just a touch. He's Jesus. He's the son of God. He's the servant king. And then Jesus sternly charged him and he sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. And so this goes back to Leviticus. He's just going back. Jesus is following the Levitical law here. Jesus follows all of the law, not just the moral law, but he follows the civil law. And here, even like we would say, even the medical laws, Jesus is following all of that. Jesus is a law keeper and he's sending them to go and to tell the priest but also he's sending a message that there's a cleanser among them it's a call for them even I think to clean up their own act now look at this is this leper is he obedient or is he disobedient don't miss this is he obedient or is he disobedient the answer is he's disobedient He's half obedient. He does what he says. He goes back to probably Jerusalem. He's got to go some 60 miles from Capernaum, outside of Capernaum, you know, in Galilee, all the way to Jerusalem. He's going to travel some almost 60 miles probably to go into Jerusalem to show the priest, the high priest that he's been cleansed. But on his way, he begins to tell everybody. Verse 45, but he went out and began to talk freely about it. I just to tell everybody about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter. As we bring this down and bring this into our own lives, throughout throughout the Bible, leprosy is used as a picture of sin. And we really see that in Leviticus 13, how it parallels sin even in. Like sin, leprosy is deeper than the skin. It's not just what you see. It's something that's a disease that's even deeper. It's deeper than what is on the surface. Leprosy, like sin, it, it spreads. You can't contain it. Eventually, you can't hide it. Leprosy and sin both, they defile. They render you unclean. Sin, it isolates and it destroys intimacy and it destroys community with others. Sin fractures community. It fractures intimacy. It dehumanizes us. I mean, just again, think about that picture of, of a leper having to wear torn clothes and grow their hair out long and cover their, their lip and yell and announce everywhere they go, unclean, unclean, unclean. It leads to shame in the same way sin dehumanizes us. It humiliates us. It leads to shame. Leprosy, it becomes synonymous in the Old Testament for God's judgment upon someone. 
In fact, it's often even the evidence of God's judgment on someone. Remember King Uzziah in 2 Chronicles when he assumes the role of the priest and goes into the, into the temple to offer the sacrifice and then God brings judgment against him and leprosy breaks out on his forehead. But ultimately, not only does leprosy give us a metaphor and a picture of sin, also this action is a demonstration of what Jesus has come to do. That Jesus has come to cleanse us, to renew us, to cleanse us from our sins, to cleanse us from the shame and the guilt and the defilement of sin. Jesus has come to go beyond, beneath the surface of our sin, to get at the very heart of sin by changing us and changing our hearts. That Jesus calls us out of isolation into real community and into real intimacy with him and with others to restore our dignity, the dignity that sin has robbed from us. How is he doing this? Well, we can even dive in deeper into this text. Two ways in which God does this even today in our lives to heal us from sin, to restore us. One is our work and the other is his work. I want you to see also in this as a metaphor for, if, if leprosy is a metaphor for sin, let me just say this, this leper is a metaphor for what salvation looks like and how to receive salvation. Notice what it says about him. He came to Jesus imploring him, kneeling before him, and he asked Jesus, if you will, you can make me clean. Notice what it takes here, courage, humility, and faith. I don't often talk about courage, but it took great courage of this man. Great courage to, to press in, to, to break the law, to get rude, if you will. He's going for broke here. Maybe that's how we would say it. He's just going for broke. He's so desperate. He's so sick and tired of being sick and tired. And yes, that's from Dumb and Dumber, but it's true. We've lived it. That's why we love that movie. It resonates in our hearts because have you ever been sick and tired of being sick and tired? And that's where he is. He's sick and tired of being sick and tired. He's desperate. And he's like, hey, I heard there's a healer. I heard there's one who can cleanse. He's convinced that Jesus is his only means to be cleansed. It's only Jesus. And it takes great courage to do that. And I say that because salvation takes great courage. Some of you are like, I don't want to be the deal and I don't want to stand up in front of others and I don't want to get baptized and I don't want people to talk about me. I just want to kind of sit here in isolation and hide. Listen, you're not being courageous in that. Jesus says there's a part of it that we must profess him publicly so he will profess us publicly. You profess me publicly before people. I will profess you publicly before the Father, he says. There's a part of us that sometimes we go, you know what, can I just be a quiet Christian no, you can't. It takes courage to step up and step in and say, you know what, I'm gonna follow Jesus and be counted as a follower of Jesus. And so it takes courage and he has courage and yet he comes humbly imploring him. The man's desperation and his courage then met Jesus and his compassion and his willingness. And when those two converge, a miracle happened. The same thing happens to us when we want to be changed, when we want to be cleansed, when we are courageous and we're humble and we come before him in faith, miracles happen when we're changed by him. Because ultimately Jesus has power and he's compassion and he's willing. But then there is another metaphor here, a description of how salvation works. 
It is changed through exchange. That notice here in this text that it's easy to skip over. But Jesus and the leper, they, they trade places, if you will. You see that in the, in the beginning of the story that it's the leper who's an outcast and the leper who's isolated and Jesus is in the city. And then whenever the leper comes and he meets Jesus, they, they trade places, if you will, because the text then ends with, with the leper being in the city and Jesus being in a desolate place. It is changed by exchange. That that's the metaphor for what Jesus has done at the cross for us. That you and I, we are that we are spiritual lepers who lived in alienation and isolation from God and we meet him. And when we meet him, we're brought into the presence of God and into the kingdom of God. But the only way that we could ever be taken from our isolation and brought into the presence of God was that Jesus had to leave the presence of God and go into isolation. And that's what he does in his humanity and that's, what he does on the cross. What is happening on the cross is we are trading places. Jesus is trading places, if you will, with us. In fact, oftentimes I'll say the gospel can be proclaimed in four words, Jesus in my place. That is what's happening on the cross is Jesus is standing in our place. It's what the apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter five, for our sake, and this is verse 21, for our sake, because he has pity and compassion on sinners like us, that he made him, that's God the Father, made God the Son to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That on the cross, Jesus was forsaken and treated as an outcast and treated as, as if he were unclean. And because of that, you and I, we are, we are cleansed and we are accepted and we are welcomed into the presence of God. The leper's disobedience, it was costly to Jesus. It cost Jesus his freedom. It drove him out into the desolate place. And you and I, we, we this morning, we come to this table remembering that our disobedience cost Jesus. It cost him his life. But out of his compassion for sinners like us, he goes to the cross, laying down his life, trading places with sinners like us in order to cleanse us, in order to renew us, in order to restore us, in order to include us, in order to welcome us. And so we come by invitation and remember what Jesus has done. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your benevolent, compassionate work of Jesus on the cross. Thank you that you, for our sake, because you have pity and compassion on sinners like us, you made your son to be sin, even though he knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Father, this morning I pray for those who are still living in desolate places of an outcast as a sinner outside of the family of God, holding on to their shame, holding on to their suffering. I pray today that they would have the courage and the humility and the faith to come to you and to be cleansed. I pray especially there are people in this room who are saved individuals. They still deal day in and day out with the guilt and the shame of past sins or possibly even present sins. May they see you, Jesus, not just as 
the clean one, not just as the righteous one, but the one who has power to make clean, the cleansing agent. And as we sing earlier, may we plunge ourselves beneath your blood. That's what we remember in this ordinance is the means by which we have been clean. Jesus be magnified and Jesus be glorified in this time. In your name we pray, amen.